Hello and welcome to The Booking Club with Jack Aldane, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favourite places to eat and drink. On this episode, I'm speaking to Henry Mance, journalist and author of How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Henry Mance, chief features writer for the Financial Times, author, vegan provocateur. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you on the Booking Club. How are you? Great. It's really good to be here. It's lovely to be in London and to feel like um, the world is alive again. Where are you normally? We are, I am in North London normally, but um, whenever I've come down to here, it's felt like a special treat. You know, like your he- your hellish commute is now some kind of road to paradise. I'm pleased to say that I've been to cricket in Brixton, uh-huh. uh, which was excellent. But of course, I have to ask why you've chosen cricket. I could try and say why for you, I suppose. I mean, it had to be Indian, didn't it, with India's rich spiritual tradition of Hindu and Jainism, but we'll get on to that in a moment. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I mean, um, I, try and, I try and say in my book and in, in life generally that like vegan food does not have to be rubbish and it's does not not a life uh, like Gandhi of deprivation and, you know, like giving up meat is not a sort of path to giving up alcohol and giving up coffee and, you know, as people did in the 19th century, giving up mustard and white flour. It's not all set part of the same packet anymore. So I thought this restaurant, uh, which I haven't been to before, would uh, uh, would kind of showcase some of that. It's even more wrapped because the book even starts with the theme of reincarnation, doesn't it? In other words, if you or I were to come back as a non-human species, what would we come back as? And if we're talking probability, most of us, as you argue, would come back as a uh, factory farm animal or something much worse, especially if it was based on how humans treat animals. What is it about the term animal lover that sits so oddly today? Well, firstly, I just think it is like a sort of verbal tick that people use. And it's, it's often used quite defensively, like, I, I love animals, but... And, um, I, you know, I just, I just heard people using it in different contexts, like Jose Mourinho, when, um, when he was uh, comp- compared his strikers, Harry Kane and Human Song, to to animals said I-, I love animals and like Tucker Carlson when he was debating a vegan said I love animals and I just know so many people who use that phrase without thinking what it means and of course it does sit really oddly with a world of factory farms but also with a world of kind of extinction and I think like how you would rationalize the way we treat animals with the way we describe ourselves as so close to animals and so loving of their beauty and their internal minds and all these things um, I think it, it's sort of a, it's a jumping off point and I don't think there are that I think that everybody um, to some extent um, sees themselves or sees some kind of joy in an animal I, I'm maybe exaggerating a bit maybe there's sort of 20% of the population which doesn't but that gives you like a huge majority I feel of people who, who do want to do right by animals but who haven't quite taken the cognitive leap What's been your relationship with animals growing up? It would be good, I think, for the listeners to understand how the animal world and you have interacted and how that's fed into your your urge, I suppose, to write this book. Yeah, so I'm not one of these people who write nature books who's had, like, some uh, close relationship since childbirth with animals who sort of, uh, you know, hugged gorillas or, you know, uh, nurtured a, a hawk in a barn or something like that. Um, you know, I, I've lived a pretty typical, like, urban life, you know, of... Having my family had a pet dog, I loved the dog very much. The dog uh, passed away. We went on, um, you know, nature um, holidays where to see animals. We went to the zoo, and then, 
animals kind of fell out of my life, I think, in when I was a young adult. And because you don't go to, tend to go to the zoo anymore. I took up photography and I became a bit more interested in animals. But it was only really when I sort of took photography more seriously and I started asking, right, okay, I'm finding immense beauty in these creatures. Like, am I doing right by them? Am I, you know, making their lives in this world better? Because they're making my life better so and they feel the same emotions as I do so I, I sort of deliberately wanted to write the the book from perspective not of an expert a connoisseur but like a typical person who grows up in a city or a town now who has an affinity with animals who watches Attenborough um, you even if you don't feel like you have a huge impact on the natural world you do and so try and think through what that might what that might mean and how that could be better and as you say, you know, we have a tendency to categorize animals, those that we love because we have some sort of pet owner relationship with them, those that we truly treat as individuals. Then there are those that we treat as food. Then there are those that we may feel protective of, but generally speaking, we fear them. How do we learn to treat all animals as a group of other sentient beings that we relate to? Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And I think um, those categories kind of have to go a bit. It's not, it's not helpful because we think of farm animals as animals that are, are meant to be on farms and well they've been domesticated and bred to be good on farms and to have much more meat than is actually sort of uh, good for them for example and to produce many more offspring than uh, is probably good for their own bodies or would be practical in the wild etc but they still have an emotional un undercarriage which um, can't really be realized on a farm and so I think animals have much more in common than we realize. And this categorization allows us to underestimate those emotions. So there are some great experiments, and I talk about them a bit in the book. Um, if you ask people, does an animal feel pain? Um, and they'll say, oh, yeah. And then you say that animal gets eaten, and they'll reduce the amount of pain that they attribute or the amount of uh, ability to feel pain uh, that they attribute to that animal. And so we kind of we change our opinion of animals depending on how we treat them we we um and i think if we if we were blind to our actual habits we would start from a very different place i um i think it is really interesting those animals that cross the category lines so you know rabbits were food are now pets in north america and europe uh you know dogs were um really disliked in churches they're now welcomed into ceremonies in churches and um, you know, horses have gone from being, uh, you know, downtrodden beasts of burden to being aristocratic creatures, really, in our society. So I, I, I think you can see animals crossing across. And what I want to say is, well, look, we can accelerate this process by just taking a step back and saying all these animals have emotions, have social needs, feel pain. Are we meeting them? No. You've just reminded me, as we're sat here near Regent Street, that not far up Piccadilly, there is, of course, the memorial to uh, horses in war. So as well as going from beasts of burden to very much sentient kind of aristocratic creatures, they're also considered war heroes on some level. I think it's fascinating. And like horses in some ways kick-started the animal activism or animal rights movement in um, in Britain. It was seeing horses in terrible conditions um, uh, on the streets that led... Um, quite well-to-do people to campaign for laws um, against animal cruelty and you know set up what is now the RSPCA in Britain and then um, inspired similar organizations around the world and it's quite funny that their numbers have sort of vastly reduced and yet you, you know they've just been uh, we found better um, better alternatives both for uh, you know transport and for war 
Um, and, and to some extent for sport, I mean, whether we'll still be racing horses in the way we are now in 50 years, I mean, the example of greyhounds is that actually once you really start to appreciate animals that that kind of racing doesn't sit well with a lot of people so I think horses are a really fascinating example of a of, of like an animal which has inspired us to think differently but is now no longer so present in in how we um, ha- how we interact with animals and people often say well look if you don't eat cows there won't be so many cows and they don't use the same art- argument about horses like well if you don't use horses to drag carts around the city there won't be so many horses I think we just accepted that breeding that many horses for that activity was not a particularly great thing to do and I think hopefully we will accept one day that it's better not to have hundreds of millions of of cows around if the way you're going to treat them is the way we treat them on some farms. Let's talk about the tendency of people who care about animals yet manage not to care about farm animals. This paradox is in essence our relationship with animals as food. The thing which you write has shaped our relationship with animals more than anything else. At the risk of putting us off our vegan lunch, and I will be taking your lead on what to order on this, I think it's important to touch just on the impact of your experience shadowing workers at the abattoir on Forge Farm. There were some pretty vivid, pretty harrowing and and disturbing things you saw there. Yeah, I mean, I definitely don't recommend uh, going to work in an abattoir, no matter how bad your career is. But um, the work is available. It's particularly available now because um, most people who worked in British abattoirs are EU nationals. Um, Hilariously, on the British Meatpackers Association website, it sort of speculates for the reasons why this might be. And it says, you know, many people may not be aware that these jobs exist, which is hilarious because it tells us, like what many people who presumably are meat eaters are not aware that jobs in the meat industry exist I mean we just kind of think it sort of magics up on our plate you know we don't think that somebody has to disassemble um, this huge number of bodies that we put through the system like my my experience in an abattoir yeah okay like it's sweaty it's noisy it stinks you know there are pieces of, of body flying all over the place but in some ways what I came to the conclusion of is like not that this put this wasn't the reason that put me off meat you know and this isn't I think the fact that we kill animals is not the reason for giving up meat I, although it's quite it's quite an amazing thing to just think about the system I think what I realised working in abattoir was we've created this huge system where huge numbers of animals are raised and then come through and the timing of their death is determined by us and like maybe we can justify this and maybe we can justify the moments of suffering they have and um, the artificiality of their lives but their lives would have to be pretty good beforehand for us to justify that and also the system would have to be pretty sustainable in terms of its impact on wild animals and so the conclusion I pretty quickly come to in the book is well it's not justifiable and like it's not necessary and so we don't have to put up with these rather grim abattoirs um, and I, I, I kind of um, for me it was less less shocking than I think for some of my readers because I think once you go vegetarian and then later I went vegan you've kind of thought about this but I think for people who haven't thought about the you know the fact that an abattoir exists then yeah kind of describing a scene from abattoir is um, it can be can be brutal there's no easy way of like clicking your fingers and getting an animal to die whether you're killing fish or octopuses or whatever it might be, you can't, at the scale we're trying to do it, um, painless way. Un- unsurprisingly, this was, this was <laughs> yeah. the part of the book where I started to get really depressed and, and, and it felt like it was already starting to change my mind about a lot of things. Let's have a look at the menu. Great. Look, um, so I'm going to rely on the waiters. Is that, is that a terrible cop-out? 
Uh, it probably is. I, th- I think that loads of people's fear about vegan cooking is that like you won't be able to recreate a, a lasagna and that vegan pizza is rubbish. And they're totally right. Like you can't replicate cheese. But like um, overall, like the options we have in terms of vegetables, spices, cuisines, influences is like so much greater than our parents would have had. I mean, like didn't our parents? Our parents didn't have avocados or hummus or whatever. So you know they were struggling. And I feel like you just have to stop trying to make vegan uh, vegan pizza at least for now. At least until someone in a you know, puts a bit more research into it, and then just focus on great. Um, yeah, Indian food is a, is a great example. Well, I feel like I'm going to have that aubergine. I sort of have only had eyes for that. Um, thank you. Um, and do you that have whatever? That sounds good to me. I'll have the same. Sure. Are you sure? You don't. You don't yeah. feel um, rice, and you want to try the lentils. Um, I think I prefer rice actually. Yeah. Is that thank yeah. you? Whatever. It's like a normal life. Yeah, I think it's great, isn't it? It's so healthy as well, potentially. I hope I haven't just nicked all sorts, but I thought that might be a more COVID way of doing it. So in terms of how we frame the ethical basis on which to treat animals, for listeners who won't necessarily have heard of the five freedoms before, what are these? And is there anywhere that they are genuinely enjoyed by other species? Hmm. So the five freedoms, I mean, they include things like uh, for an animal on the farm to be free from hunger. And like that, you can pretty much sort, you know. But the key one is, you know, a freedom to express normal behaviours. And well, like, what does that mean? Oh, natural behaviours. Like these are animals that have been bred in very strange ways to be shapes and sizes that they would never be, to be kept in groups that they would never be. I mean, chickens just are jungle fowl who would not be in huge flocks and certainly wouldn't be in huge sheds. And so. Yeah, you can look at individual things like maybe a pig should have the ability to root around rather than having a metal floor or so or a concrete floor that they can't do that on. But I think in the totality, to the extent that it makes sense to talk about natural behaviours, those lives just can't be can't be lived. And I think that I think that in terms of what makes our lives kind of worth living and exciting is kind of a freedom it's kind of an ability to take decisions to take risks to decide who we hang out with to decide whether we walk over that hill or not and animals on farms don't have that and I think ultimately that's what even on a very good farm that doesn't have the most abusive practices even on a very good farm you're going to struggle with that you're going to struggle to feel that the animals are in control of their own lives and have an some ability to express themselves as individuals. That's ultimately why I think, you know, we could do, a, a, we could get rid of animal farming, we could get rid of factory farms, and the natural world would be much better for it. Our diets would be fine. Our impact on the climate would be better. Our risk of pandemics would be lower. And we sort of cling to the idea of, oh, well, what about that taste, or what about culture? And it's like. No, the, the, the kind of the, the two sides of the equation are in completely imbalanced. Some people will hear this and think, we can't even grant these things to vast swathes of humanity. Um, what, what would you say to them? Can we really love animals before we've learned to love one another? The funny thing is that, like, a bit like with lockdown, like, there's this argument made, well, what about the impact on m- mental health? And that always comes from people who weren't actually very interested in mental health beforehand. And I find that the people who, who argue against vegetarianism because can't we take care of the humans first, they're not people who actually 
are doing huge amounts of things to help humans around the world. And um, Peter Singer, who is sort of wonderfully eloquent uh, Australian philosopher in the US, I mean, he wrote a book, Animal Liberation, which was, I think, probably the most influential book on animal activism ever written. He said, like, what exactly are you doing for humanity that is stopping you from also doing something for animals? So, like, you know, you can be working in a UN refugee camp. You can still eat a vegetarian lunch. I mean, like, and I don't want to prejudge everybody's particular circumstances and their, you know, health conditions and whatever else. And so for some people, it may not be possible to be vegetarian or to be vegan. For some people, they may have such a lot of stress going in their lives that they don't want to think about changing their diet. But, like, come on, is that really most of us? Like, most of us, if we wanted to, we could dedicate a bit more attention to, to this. I completely agree. If the current rate of meat consumption, as you write about, continues, a baby born in the UK today will, over the course of its life, consume five cows, 20 sheep, 25 pigs, and 1,785 chickens. That sounds like a lot, but what does it mean in environmental terms? Well, yeah, in environmental terms, it's, um, it's bad, basically. Look, I mean... So we make little improvements about, you know, how much meat you can get from a, a cow, how much milk you can get. Um, and sometimes that has a welfare cost. But, you know, there, we, we could do meat a bit more efficiently than we could do now. We can grow the crops that we feed a lot of animals a bit more efficiently. But basically, the projection is by 2050, if meat consumption increases around the world at um, a, you know, the rate it's, it's on course to with people becoming wealthier, with more people coming into the population, we would need uh, an amount of land almost equivalent to to twice the size of India for pasture and crops. And that's like, that's not an option. You know, there's no floating two Indias, two subcontinents sort of somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean for us to suddenly use. So I think currently we use 70% of the world's, 77% of the world's agricultural land for animals both for grazing and then for to grow the crops that we feed them. Uh, a huge amount, and um, that produces 37% of our protein, but only 17% of our calories. And it's possible to replace um, that with arable land, uh, sorry, well, arable crops on, on the parts of the land which are arable and then food for human consumption, and then also to replace it with wild spaces, which we're kind of desperately losing um, Across and which provide, you know, other services like carbon storage and uh, flood defences, etc. So for me, it's a no-brainer that you would change how we allocate land. Um, and then, of course, you've got the carbon emissions, and it feels like one thing after another. But I, I suppose one way of thinking about it is, oh, we have this concern with treating animals well, and we also have concern with keeping the um, environment in a good state, not least for our own benefit, but that also benefits, you know, many wild animals. Um, and the problem is, quite often, if you do something that's good for welfare, like giving animals large amounts of space onto which to roam, um, or um, keeping a mother and calf together after um, a dairy cow has given birth, um, and rather than, say, killing the cow straight away, well, that might be good for the animal's welfare, but it has a higher environmental footprint. And it, uh, likewise, the thing is you can do to sort of reduce the environmental footprint, which is, you know, eat lots of factory farm chicken well that's not great for welfare so if we have these two values in our head that we want animals to live good lives on farms but we also want farms not to destroy the earth then like it's really difficult to do when i got to the part in the book where you deal with dairy i had to close the book and take a deep breath can i have the eggs henry 
Look, Please tell me I can keep the eggs. eggs. Eggs are a relatively efficient way of producing protein, I think. Um, if you look at the... And our world and data have brilliant charts um, at this where you can look at how much land, how much carbon emissions is tied up in your food. And you'll just see that, like, um, as a rule of thumb, animal products are just much more intensive than non-animal products. And I, the reason... Look, you can go into all the complexities of it and you can say, oh, it's this, there's this other way of doing it and what about... What about if I only eat, you know, foxes that I've run over with my car? And, and it's like, well, yes, some of, that, some of that's relevant. But also when people are eating, they just need some, like, basic rules of thumb. Like, and there's no point getting too complex about whether an avocado is worse than a, a chicken in terms of carbon emissions. As you say, it sounds like one thing after the other. But you do really well at putting everything in perspective. So, so when it comes to dairy, then, if it's the first thing that we should really take off the menu, I'm trying to think here for people who are starting to think, well, look, I've had thoughts about going vegan for a while, but these things, these things that I've been consuming since childhood, the milk, the eggs, the, the cheese, what can possibly replace these? That's a great question because um, there is like, um, I went vegan and then I thought, right, okay, I'll go home and cook dinner. And then I was like, oh crap, I can't actually cook anything because like everything, like the pesto, uh, it all has cheese in it um, somewhere. And um, so look, for coffee, or I use oat milk. For tea, I guess I would have it without milk. For cereal, oat milk, porridge, oat milk. Um, and then I think like there are better vegan cheeses coming through, but I think you're your best bet is someone if you're someone who wants to eat sustainably and eat um, in a way that's consistent with animal welfare is to move to foods that don't use animal products so to u- to use more spices to use more vegetables to use cur- to cook curries to cook stews um, and to, to look to a, a slightly different flavor palette um, I you know I, I guess if you you know if you um, the other thing I would say is, like, I took a... My, my, my diet changed very slowly. You know, I gave up... I basically gave up fish because I was worried about overfishing. Then I went vegetarian, um, but I kept eating loads of cheese. In fact, like, when you go vegetarian, you eat more cheese than ever before. And then even at this stage, my wife said, look, if you go vegan, it's divorceable. And... Um, and then... And you're still married. Then I went vegan, and uh, it's not yet divorceable. And in fact... Um, but I think that happened over a process of years and like if you go cold turkey to use a non-vegan phrase but if you go cold turkey like it's going to be hard I think it has to be much more of like uh, um, getting one one foot on the other side before you lift up the other foot like if someone brings a birthday cake into the office and like it's non-vegan like I'm not going to say look actually I don't wish you a happy birthday I think I generally would have a slice of that cake although it hasn't happened for like a year and a half, so I, you know, it's not it's not a dilemma I've been faced with. But you know, I, I think I'm out to show that veganism is normal. That veganism is a, is like not a radical step that will lose all your friends. Eighty-three percent of people who signed up to Veganuary in 2020 were women. Why still so few men? Do you think? I think what's really interesting is that men and women do have different attitudes to meat and to animals, and. Um, like women uh, tend to be uh, less likely to to want a really sort of uh, bloody juicy steak and when they uh, there are surveys where 
men and women are asked to rationalise why they think it's okay to eat meat, they use different justifications. So men will talk about sort of the dominance of um, humankind over other species and women may tend to use uh, less direct justifications such as, oh, I only uh, eat, eat meat from good farms or I eat, I eat less, uh, etc. And there are quite sharp divides if you say, do should animals have the same rights as us? You know, women are much more likely than men to say, yes, they should. Um, and that has implications for animal testing. Um, often animal rights looks quite male and vegetarianism looks quite male. So you've got sort of Gandhi. You, you know, you might, if you look at animals in the whole, you might have Darwin, you might have David Attenborough. You might even have sort of conservationist voices now who tend to be people like George Monbiot, Chris Packham. But women in some ways have tended to have a much stronger perspective on this. And speaking to a dairy farm, they, uh, anecdotally, a dairy farm uh, told me that women had a much stronger reaction to the fact that dairy cows and their calves were separated at birth or very shortly after, and that then that separation was obviously painful and obviously you know left a lasting impact on the on the mother. Like women got that far more quickly than than men got that. Men might be worried more about the lameness of dairy cows um, or the actual killing process at the end, but that separation struck home more with women. The place where there's the sharpest divide between men and women is hunting, where if you look at a US survey, kind of well over 90% of hunters are uh, men, which interestingly, if you look at archaeological remains, is not the case for older societies. You know, women um, did have a role hunting and, um, you know, accounted for, it seems, a significant minority of, of animals killed. And you know, hunting has become divorced in some places from the ecological role it might be able to fulfill. So although it's, it's sad and uh, to kill an animal, it might actually be part of a sort of stewardship of the land, but it's become part of a macho culture. The, the gap is interesting, and it obviously doesn't apply to all people. If men saw themselves more in the fates of male chicks, which, as you explained, get gassed to death in hatcheries and ground up for pet food because they don't produce eggs, or, say, the Canadian laws that prohibit the hunting of mother bears with cubs, but presumably make male bears fair game, maybe men would sign up more. What do you think? Look, I really hope masculinity is changing. And, like, in 1982, someone published a book called Real Men Don't Eat Quiche. And, you know, which seems ridiculous to us now. I mean, like, these kind of versions of masculinity, they go out the window. But I, th I certainly think, like, there is something a bit weird about, like, men's desire to eat flesh um, and you know that it'd be bloody and red and yeah I sort of I don't get that it's not part of masculinity for me and you've got all these examples of like amazing athletes um, who are vegetarian or vegan yes, and yeah, so yeah. I kind of hope we'll get over that what we really need to do is make meat eaters pay the cost of meat you know both the the welfare cost and also the environmental cost. And that's really difficult to do while men see it as part of their masculinity to eat steak. So this treating of animals as individuals as a prerequisite for loving them, it's, it kind of brings us back to what we were saying earlier about how we treat each other as people. Often someone will say of their humanitarian work that if they can save one life, they will have done their job. But in order to love animals, one life isn't enough. I mean, I own a cat. I think you own a cat as well right I do yeah. yeah my cat's from the streets of Egypt if we hadn't adopted her from the rescue shelter she would have been poisoned on the streets of Cairo but it's not enough to have just saved Athena 
we have to acknowledge their reality both as individuals and as entire species and find a way to reduce the suffering of all of them. So let's go through exactly how we can love animals better. This gets us onto the animal test. I think this is what people want to know, is just what other steps we can take to perceive animals differently and treat them better consequently. Yeah, I think pets is a great place to start. You, you've done a wonderful thing with your cat. Um, I love my cat very much. And loads of people like spend huge amounts of money, time, emotional energy on their dogs, cats, fish, uh, rats, whatever it might be. And I think we have to realize that, A, those pets have a environmental cost in themselves, a cost on other animals. So, like, my, my cat eats, at the moment, quite a meaty diet i mean cats are uh, basically need to eat meat dogs slightly more mixed the evidence um and so you need to use so like even loving my cat involves supporting factory farming in some way right and so um i need to i think you need to use um we need to use our pets as like a springboard for saying right Okay, here is an example of just how rich the inner lives of animals are and their capacity for emotions. And therefore, I, I recognize that and I'm going to do what I can to protect animals in wild spaces, to reduce the suffering of, of animals in farms, to promote the use of alternatives in medical research, if that's something you're interested in, to uh, get rid of the most abusive hunting, because I think some hunting is justifiable, but the way we release 40 million pheasants and partridges into the English countryside so people can just shoot them. I mean, that seems ridiculous, both environmentally and on a welfare basis. These are cage-bred birds. And so I would, um, I would like to see people giving up meat, giving up dairy, uh, giving more to organisations that protect wild spaces, because like land is the key thing for wild animals. We talk about plastics, we talk about lots of things, but for land animals, what they need is space away from human influence. Equally at the seas, you know, more protected areas are the way we we get sea life stocks into a much better uh, position and then reduce our impact on the climate because animals are simply not going to be adapt able to adapt to the temperatures we're creating on parts of the world they're going to find their niches disappearing and we should do um, much more to reduce our carbon footprint and also our resource use the world in 50 100 years is going to look so different to the world today and we quite like the world today in terms of its forests, its coral reefs, its wild animals. So we need to do more to preserve it. I knew this book was going to challenge me. I believe it's gone some way to changing me. I may still, I sound like I'm quoting a line out of Annie Hall now, I may still need the eggs. Is that, is that from Annie Hall? Yes, yeah. <laughs> the last line of it. Ah, yeah, we all need the eggs. Brilliant, um, I love that film. In any event, let me just say congratulations to you on this book. Uh, it could not be more important, nor better written. I urge all listeners to read it. Thank you, Henry, for coming on The Booking Club and talking to me about it. Thanks so much. It's been really fun.